For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, making disciples for the glory of God. The title of our sermon this evening is The Bitter and the Sweet, Bitter and the Sweet, Revelation chapter 10, verses 8 through 11. After a brief delay now, it's good to be back with you on Sunday evenings in our verse-by-verse work through the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, where again, Jesus Christ is both the agent and the subject of revelation. Uh, We're learning from him, we're learning of him, and John has been here commissioned as his eschatological prophet, as it were, charged with writing down... All that he sees and hears, recording all that he sees and hears pertaining to the latter days in which we now live. Those perilous times which have come upon us, perilous times which comprise the end of the age, those days of what the Bible would call the great tribulation, those days that lie between the first and second comings of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, once again, as we're working through Revelation, we find ourselves now in a literary break. It's a literary pause or a literary parenthesis, and that parenthesis lies between the sounding or the blast of the sixth and seventh trumpets. It's a parenthesis that intends to provide us with a perspective of the Lord's church. If you think with me, we've been going through these cycles, these literary cycles, each cycle dealing with the judgment of God poured out upon unbelieving earth dwellers. And in each cycle, now the cycle of seals, now the cycle of trumpets, there's a brief pause where we we break from that perspective, a perspective of God's judgment poured out upon earth dwellers to see uh, from a perspective of the Lord's church. In the cycle of seals, we saw that perspective of the church militant on earth in battle array, as it were, arranged as the, the tribes of Israel, so to speak. And then we saw the church triumphant in her worship of God in heaven, gathered around the throne with palm branches in her hands, worshiping the Lord. Here in this parenthesis, now between the sixth and the seventh trumpets, we also are going to see uh, a perspective of the church during this time of the end. It'll be a perspective of the church or a vision of the church in her witness as a faithful witness to the Lord in a dark age. Uh, But until that point, now we're entering into this uh, section of text, Revelation chapter 10, where we're seeing a recommissioning, if you will, of John to continue his work as the Lord's eschatological prophet. So in all of that, our focus is redirected, so to speak. Redirected from the outpouring of God's judgment upon unrepentant earth dwellers and redirected now to a witness, to the witness and work of the church, the church militant during this age, the church militant in her ongoing war or ongoing conflict with the seed of the serpent. And all of that, that change in perspective, really, brothers and sisters, is meant to encourage us. It's meant to encourage God's people as the church fights the good fight of faith, as the church engages in the warfare of this age. It's visions like this, brothers and sisters, that we're to meditate on that should encourage us in the battle. And I know in our day and age and in our location, we don't face the kinds of persecution that our brothers and sisters throughout history have faced. We don't face the same kind of persecution that other Christians in other parts of the world currently face. But brothers and sisters, we face persecution. It's not uh, always easy to take a stand for the Lord Jesus Christ with family 
or with those that you're witnessing to. And uh, many of you, I know, you're out witnessing. You're witnessing lost people on a regular basis. It's not always easy to be a faithful witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. And many times we face uh, difficulty within ourselves, our own fear of man or our own uh, lack of diligence or zeal, our own fight against spiritual apathy, those kinds of things. And so we face difficulty in the Christian life. The Christian life isn't going to be easy. We're promised adversity. We're promised difficulty. So it's, it's visions like this in the book of the Revelation meant for the Lord's church that should be um, a means of your encouragement as you live for the Lord Jesus Christ. As we battle with sin, as we battle error within, or as we battle enemies within, as, and as we battle enemies without, as we face persecution, as we go outside the camp, so to speak, and bear the reproach of the Lord Jesus Christ, we need encouragement. Amen? We need help. We need, we need that um, kind fuel from the Lord for our faith that will help us to press forward in the work. We cannot grow weary in well-doing. We must persevere to the end as a faithful witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. So that perspective, the perspective of the church meant to encourage us. We're going to be encouraged from Revelation chapter 11. We're going to be encouraged tonight from Revelation chapter 10. Um, this chapter reminds me of when the Lord met with his disciples in the upper room before his death. And the Lord in the upper room, as he met with his disciples, he warned them of what they would face as witnesses for him in this wicked world. Jesus Christ was going to depart them via the cross. He was going to leave them, so to speak. He promised he would come to them, and he has. But he was going to leave them, and he warned them what they would face as witnesses in their own day for the Lord Jesus Christ. Many of them went to their deaths. John here, exiled on the island of Patmos, exiled for his faith in Jesus Christ, exiled for his testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the Lord wanted to encourage them. And what did he do? He told them what would come. He told them what that ministry would entail. He told them what that was going to look like so that... As those things came to pass, they would remember that he told them of them. They would remember that he is sovereign over all things whatsoever that come to pass, and they would take encouragement that the Lord Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning over the kingdom even now. They would take encouragement uh, from the Lord Jesus Christ in their ministry. It was so that the Lord said they would not be made to stumble. They would not be made to stumble. The effect of his warning was so that as those things which he had prophesied would come to pass, they would remember that he told them beforehand and they would take strength and encouragement by the fact that he is sovereign over all those things. It was for the purpose that they would learn to trust him in times of difficulty. Turn to the Lord in faith in times of difficulty when you feel weary. Lest you become weary and discouraged in your own souls, consider him who endured such hostility against himself at the hands of sinners and take strength, take encouragement, take refuge in him. Now, the picture of the church during her time of testing should have the same effect for us. No matter how dark, no matter how difficult our circumstances may be, the Lord Jesus Christ is walking in the midst of his lampstands. It's not lost on him. He understands. He knows what you're going through. He was and always tempted as we are, yet without sin, he is a great, a faithful high priest. The Lord Christ walks in the midst of his church. He is unleashing those decrees that are written in the scroll, and we can trust him with all that will take place. 
But before we're given that perspective of the church now, we're brought again tonight to see the recommissioning of John as the Lord's prophet in chapter 10. John has unfinished work to complete, okay? A mighty angel that we have identified in this chapter as the Lord Jesus Christ himself, he has an open book in his hand, reminiscent of the scroll that was loosed in the cycle of seals. Having all authority given to him, he stands abreast the earth and the sea. In other words, he stands over all creation. And he takes an oath by him who lives forever and ever that there should be delay no longer. All those things decreed in the scroll should be brought to their full and final end in the days of the sounding of the seventh trumpet. Days in which the mystery of God would be finished. A mystery declared to his servants the prophets, a mystery now revealed in the preaching of the gospel. And a mystery now given to the Apostle John as he records his vision of the end. And it's for that purpose, for the purpose of recommissioning John to that work, that we see the account of his recommissioning in verse 8, beginning in verse 8. Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. So John says in verse 9, I went to the angel and said to him, give me the little book. And he said to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. And he said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. Now, John's commissioning here, recommissioning, begins with a command given by the voice which John heard from heaven, that voice in verse 8. It's the same voice, if you will, that John heard from heaven in verse 4, a voice from heaven that prevented John from writing that which was uttered by the seven thunders, right? There, he was told to seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered, do not write them. Here, this voice tells John to go and take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel, John, in the beginning of this chapter, was prepared to do exactly what he'd been commissioned to do, which is to write those things which he he sees and hears. But there's this voice from heaven, a voice that there represented the one, at least represented the one who reveals these things or determines that which is revealed, if not the one who himself reveals. Either one. In In either case, God is the one who determines that which is revealed to his people. He determines in great wisdom that which is revealed, and he determines that which he must withhold for our good and his own glory, and here he withholds the testimony of those seven thunders. He chooses now to reveal the work of Christ during this age through the writing of John. In part, through the continued testimony of John, John is recommissioned as an eschatological prophet, and John now will reveal what God intends to reveal to his people, to his church. So John is commanded by the heavenly voice again now in verse 8. Go, take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. Not unlike Revelation chapter 5, if you remember that account of the Lord Jesus Christ entering the throne room and taking the scroll from the right hand of him who is seated on the throne. In Revelation chapter 5, the Lord Jesus Christ is given responsibility for that scroll. Not unlike that scene now in Revelation chapter 10, 
John is given responsibility for this little open book in the hand of the mighty angel. He's given responsibility for the book. If you remember in Revelation chapter 5, there was no one found worthy in heaven or on earth to take the scroll. No one found worthy to loose its seals. John weeps because no one was found worthy. And then who appears on the scene? The lion from the tribe of Judah. He steps forward to take the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Once he had taken the scroll, all authority given to him, the Lord then began to loose the seven seals and to execute the judgments concerning the end that were written on the scroll. In other words, in Revelation chapter 5, the Lord Jesus Christ takes responsibility for that book. The Lord Jesus Christ is given authority, if you will, over that book. The Lord Jesus Christ is given a stewardship of all that is written there. He takes responsibility for it. And what does the Lord begin to do? He begins to loose the seven seals. And with the loosing of the seven seals, we see the execution of God's decrees concerning this time of the end. The same thing essentially happens with John now in Revelation chapter 10. John is now given a command, Revelation chapter 10 verse 8, to take responsibility for this little book. He's going to take authority, if you will, over this book. He's going to steward the contents of this book. You notice it's open in the hand of the one who is given authority to open it. The book is open. In other words, there's this this invitation for John to what? For John to read. (laughs) For John to look. If the book is open, it's like an open invitation to read, to look at what's contained there. And again, this one who has authority to open it, this angel, is the one again who is described as standing on the sea and on the earth. Again, described in that way, indicating his authority over creation. This is this mighty angel again that we've identified with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now it's open, and so John is being invited to read it. And notice second, it's described as a little book. The diminutive form there, little book, is likely to communicate that it's not the same large scroll with seven seals from Revelation chapter 5. Not the same scroll, but rather it's a smaller segment of that revelation, an abridged version, if you will, what's left, if you will. And immediately after John was forbidden to record the utterance of the seven thunders, this little book is another indication that we're only given what is meant for us to know. We're not given the whole picture. Brothers and sisters, we are touching the hem of the garment, as it were. When we think about Scripture, what has been revealed to us, we think about the glory of God, what we know of God, what God has done through our Lord Jesus Christ, all that he has revealed, we're touching the hem of the garment. <laughs> we're, only, we only, we're only seeing a small segment of that. We'll know far more glorified in eternity, but we will spend the ages learning more and more of our incomprehensible God as we live uh, in eternity. Amen? At this point, by the wisdom of God, we're given that which we need to know. We're given that which we need for the encouragement of the church. In the infinite wisdom of God, he doesn't reveal all of it to us. We couldn't handle all of it. (laughs) He gives us exactly what we need, all that pertains to life and godliness. Now, Additionally, in Jesus Christ taking responsibility for the scroll in Revelation chapter 5, there's also conveyed in that a sense of authority. Jesus takes the scroll from the right hand of him who is enthroned in heaven. Right hand, his hand of authority, so to speak. He sat on the throne. He's enthroned, indicating his authority. He holds the scroll in his right hand, indicating his authority. So, In taking the scroll then, Jesus Christ, executing his decrees, 
Jesus Christ is accepting responsibility. There's an accountability, if you will, to that authority. Jesus said during his earthly ministry in John chapter 8, I always do those things that please him. I always do those things that please him. It's John 8, 29. Always do those things which please the Father. In other words, Jesus Christ in love for the Father always submitted himself to the Father's will to do those things, only those things which pleased him. Jesus Christ in taking the scroll out of his right hand in the throne room of heaven, Jesus Christ is committing himself to do those things which God has decreed, executing those decrees. God, Jesus Christ has taken responsibility, as it were, to please the Father. In similar fashion, then in Revelation chapter 10, think with me, when John takes responsibility for that little book open in the hand of the angel, there is again this conveyed sense of authority, of accountability. The little book is given to John by the one who stands over the earth and the sea. Three times that's mentioned in our text. The one who's been given authority. He's been given that little scroll, that little open book, by the one who has a voice that sounds like a lion when it roars. There's a sense of authority, right? He's been given that book by the one who has commanded that there should be delay no longer. He's commanded a swift execution of that which is written in the book. So when John takes responsibility for that little book, he doesn't have liberty to do as he pleases, does he? He doesn't have liberty to roll it out on his own timetable or to talk about it as he pleases. No, he has a stewardship responsibility for that little book. And he's been given that responsibility by one in great authority. And so John has accountability to that one in great authority. Now that responsibility is indicated in verse 11 when the angel says to John, you must prophesy again about many people's nations, tongues, and kings. John has given his marching orders, right? So in this recommissioning, John has again been given a stewardship of God's revelation. If you remember from Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, John was told, write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. That was John's commissioning. Here, John is told that his commission is not yet complete. All these things will be soon brought, will soon be brought to their consummated end, so John must write again. The household of God is built, Ephesians chapter 2.20, on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, the chief cornerstone being Jesus Christ, and John is here acting in his role as an apostle, as God's eschatological prophet, responsible for communicating the revelation of God's word to God's people. That's weighty, right? That's a, a heavy responsibility. John is communicating God's revealed word to God's own people. John is to be faithful in that stewardship. John is to accept responsibility, and he's to be faithful in that responsibility. Incidentally, that little book comes to us too. <laughs> right? Think about it with me. By the grace of God, that comes to us in the form of an open book, a book that has been given to us, a book that has been revealed to us, a little book, by the way, we're touching the hem of the garment, John himself said there are many, also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that could be written. So we too, brothers and sisters, we've been given responsibility for the book, haven't we? It is the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. To the saints, we have been given responsibility. You and I have a stewardship. 
don't we? We've been given this book. We have a stewardship of God's revelation. That's why we are a nation of priests, a nation of prophets, as it were. You and I have been given a great commission. John is being recommissioned in Revelation chapter 10. You and I have been given a great commission. The question is, as it is to John, will you be faithful with this book? Will you steward it well? Will you be responsible for what is contained in it? And will you preach that to everyone else, right? That's our, those are our marching orders. In a similar fashion, we're given a commission as well. And we are to testify of these things. And we're going to see the church in her role as that witness in Revelation chapter 11. We must fulfill our stewardship. In Revelation chapter 11, we must fulfill our stewardship even to the point of death, if it means that, before we enter glory. Now, referring to John again here in Revelation 10, John wasn't only commanded to take the little book out of the hand of the angel. John was commanded to eat the little book. Verse 9, so I went to the angel and said to him, give me the little book. He said to me, take and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. Now, what we see in verse 9 is, again, typological of God's dealings with his prophets. Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 2. Ezekiel chapter 2. This is typological, if you will, of God's own dealings with his prophets, God sets a precedent, as it were, in his commissioning of Ezekiel. And the experience of Ezekiel in Ezekiel's own commissioning sets a pattern that we now see repeated in Revelation with John. Here at the commissioning of Ezekiel as God's prophet, Ezekiel is speaking with the one high above the heavenly throne. He's described in terms used of Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 1. So who do we know this to be in Ezekiel chapter 2? Or in Ezekiel chapter 1, this is the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Who does Isaiah see high and lifted up in the temple? His, the train of his robe filling the temple. Isaiah sees there the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that from John chapter 12. The Bible tells us that's who Jesus, or that's who Isaiah saw when Isaiah spoke of him. Here we see a picture, if you will, of the enthroned Christ uh, commissioning Ezekiel as a prophet. Now, He's described in terms used of Jesus Christ. His appearance brilliant with the likeness of the glory of the Lord, Ezekiel says. And Ezekiel on his face at the sight of it all. And he said to me, Ezekiel chapter 2 verse 1. He said to me, son of man, stand on your feet and I will speak to you. Then the spirit entered me when he spoke to me. That's the anointing of the spirit, by the way, on God's prophets. He set me on my feet and I heard him who spoke to me. And he said to me, son of man, I am sending you to the children of Israel, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day, for they are impudent and stubborn children. I am sending you to them, and you shall say to them, thus says the Lord God. As for them, whether they hear or whether they refuse, for they are a rebellious house, yet they will know that a prophet has been among them. So we get a taste of Ezekiel's commissioning, right? Ezekiel sent to a rebellious people that would refuse to hear his words. Like Ezekiel, the apostle John is sent to a rebellious people who would refuse to hear his words. If you think about John's prophecy, prophecy of judgment, 
that is proclaimed against rebellious, unrepentant earth dwellers. And what do we see at the end of Revelation chapter 9? They did not repent. God pours out his judgment and they refused to repent. John is going to be sent to rebellious people. Like Ezekiel and John, we too are sent to a rebellious people, many of whom will refuse to hear your word. Some will hear it. Many will refuse. Not all will refuse. God has promised to save a remnant. Uh, So with Paul, we say, we do all things then for the sake of the elect. We don't know who they are. They don't have a yellow stripe down their back. So we can tell, like Spurgeon would say. So we go to every creature preaching the gospel, praying for the sake of the elect, that they would be saved for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're to go with the message. And it's a message that many will refuse. So he says in verse six then, you then, son of man, Do not be afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words. Though briars and thorns are with you, and though you dwell among scorpions, do not be afraid of their words or dismayed by their looks, though they are a rebellious house. Don't fear their faces. Don't do it. Verse 7, you shall speak my words to them. Not words of worldly wisdom not figments of our own imagination. We can't make this thing up as we go along, telling them what we think they want to hear. We can't preach peace, peace to them when God says there is no peace to the wicked. We have to preach God's words to them. Whether they hear verse seven or whether they refuse, for they are rebellious. But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Do not be rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. Eat what I give you. It's a further explanation of hear what I say to you. But not just hear. Take these words into your innermost being. Be Consume them and be consumed by them. Do you see? In Ezekiel chapter 3, Ezekiel is commanded to take them into his heart. You are being given this responsibility for these words. This is essentially what John is told to do in Revelation. Take God's word into your innermost being. Take them into your heart. God's word becomes so much a part of the man of God that the man of God becomes himself an instrument of God's revelatory word. He is an instrument of God's word, not his own. Do you see? Such that when he opens his mouth, he's proclaiming, thus saith the Lord. Thus says the Lord God. Ezekiel consumes and Ezekiel is consumed. John consumes And John is consumed. The people of God are consumed. They consume and they are consumed. We're to go out and preach it. Amen? Verse 9 then. Now when I looked, there was a hand stretched out to me. And behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me. And there was writing on the inside and on the outside. In other words, it's complete. Nothing can be added. Nothing can be taken away. And written on it, verse 10, were lamentations and mourning and woe. And just like this lamentation, mourning, and woe would be poured out in judgment upon those who would not repent at the rebuke of Ezekiel, those in Revelation chapter 9, at the sounding of the sixth trumpet, those not killed by those plagues, they refused to repent of the work of their hands. However, in Ezekiel chapter 9, there would be those who were marked by God on their forehead. If you remember that account from Ezekiel 9, the man clothed in linen, in white linen, the man who had a writer's inkhorn at his side, 
is to command it to go through Jerusalem and mark those on the forehead who sigh and cry over the abominations done in the city. God goes through the city and marks his people on their foreheads. How are they characterized? They are those who groan, who sigh and cry over the abominations of the land. Why? Because they are God's people. They're dwelt by God's spirit. The angels then are told to follow after that one, after he has sealed God's people. The angel is told to follow after him, killing the rest. Not sparing, not pitying, filling the courts with the slain. In Revelation 2, we too remember that those who have been marked by God on their foreheads, we remember them. Those who sigh and cry over the abominations committed in our own day, committed in our own world. The people of God are preserved by God against the judgments that God pours out against the wicked, against the earth dwellers. God seals his people. We see him marking them on their forehead. So Ezekiel, in this way, Ezekiel is commissioned as the Lord's prophet. Chapter 3, then, turn the page, chapter 3, verse 1. Moreover, he said to me, son of man, eat what you find. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he caused me to eat that scroll. And he said to me, son of man, feed your belly, fill your stomach with this scroll that I give you. So I ate and it was in my mouth as like honey and sweetness. Abomination is a word that is most often used in reference to idolatry. Here in Ezekiel, the people of Judah are, uh, have plunged themselves into a perverse idolatry. And they're going to face the judgment of God for it. The commissioning of John in Revelation chapter 10 is not unlike the commissioning of Ezekiel in that sense. John is being sent to an idolatrous people. Not the idolatrous nation of Israel, the idolatrous nations of this world. Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 14. I want you to see this, Ezekiel chapter 14. And in verse 4, Ezekiel is given the content of this message that he's to preach. Verse 4. Therefore speak to them, Ezekiel, and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Every one of the house of Israel who sets up his idols in his heart and puts before him what causes him to stumble into iniquity, and then comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him who comes according to the multitude of his idols, that I may seize the house of Israel by their heart, because they are all estranged from me by their idols. Verse 6, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Repent, Turn away from your idols. Turn your faces away from all your abominations. Right? That abominable idolatry. Verse 7. For anyone of the house of Israel or of strangers who dwell in Israel who separates himself from me and sets up idols in his heart and puts before him what causes him to stumble into iniquity, then comes to a prophet to inquire of him concerning me, I, the Lord, will answer him by myself. I will set my face against that man and make him a sign and a proverb, and I will cut him off from the midst of my people. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Then notice with me verse 21. Verse 21. For thus says the Lord God, 
How much more it shall be when I send my four severe judgments on Jerusalem, the sword and famine and wild beasts and pestilence to cut off man and beast from it. How much more? Yet behold, verse 22, there shall be left in it a remnant. God's mercy, God's grace. There shall be left a remnant who will be brought out, both sons and daughters. Surely they will come out to you. You will see their ways and their doings. Then you will be comforted concerning the disaster that I've brought upon Jerusalem, all that I've brought upon it. You'll be encouraged. And they will comfort you when you see their ways and their doings. And you shall know that I have done nothing without cause that I have done in, in it, says the Lord God. The Lord God knows what he's doing. The Lord has a redemptive plan, a redemptive purpose that he's executing. It involves the judgment upon the wicked, but you'll be comforted by the ways and doings of God's people when you see it. Should cause us to remember the doctrine of the remnant from the prophecy of Isaiah in Romans chapter 9, right? Though the mass of fallen humanity will perish in their sin, yet there will be a remnant of elect Jews and elect Gentiles called out by God. That remnant encourages us, doesn't it? We take comfort in that. That's the remnant that we see around us every time we come into this place, right? The remnant of God's people. God's people saved, redeemed, called to himself, filled with his spirit, promised the covenant promises of Abraham. That encourages us to see God work in that way. It will encourage us at this time too. It's upon that believing remnant that God is going to pour out all of the blessings that he promised to Abraham. And we're to consider the goodness and severity of God. The bitter and the sweet. Goodness toward us who believe. Severity on those who fell. Back in Revelation chapter 10 then, in the commissioning of John. Revelation chapter 10, verse 10. John says, I took the little book out of the angel's hand and I ate it. Just like Ezekiel, right? He said it was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. The bitter and the sweet. John obeys, and then John experiences what the angel says he will experience. He takes the little book into his mouth. The taste is sweet. But once the book, and we can surmise the contents of the book, settle, once those contents settle into his stomach, the enduring sensation was bitter. In other words, God's word is precious. It is sweet to those who trust in him. To those who have been born again, Psalm 119, 103, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. What is sweet to the man of God settles as bitterness when it comes to his responsibility to steward that word to an idolatrous people. It is tragic, it can be disheartening, discomforting. It can be um, a cause for mourning, a cause for sorrow. When you see that word, which is so sweet to us, rejected by sinful man, by idolatrous people. Ezekiel said of his commissioning, in Ezekiel chapter three, verse 14, he said, the spirit lifted me up, took me away, and I went in bitterness in the heat of my spirit, but the hand of the Lord was strong upon me. Those words, as sweet as honey in his mouth, but as Ezekiel went to preach that judgment upon an idolatrous people, it was as bitterness in his stomach. God's hand was strong upon him. To the prophet Jeremiah, listen to this from Jeremiah. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? 
Indeed, their their ear is uncircumcised and they cannot give heed. Behold, the word of the Lord is a reproach to them. They have no delight in it. Therefore, I am full of the fury of the Lord. I am weary of holding it in. I will pour it out on the children outside and on the assembly of young men together. For even the husband shall be taken with the wife, the aged with him who is full of days. Later, he would say then, verse 15, O Lord, you know, remember me and visit me. Take vengeance for me upon my persecutors. In your enduring patience, do not take me away. Know that for your sake, I have suffered rebuke. Your words were found and I ate them. Your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. I did not sit in the assembly of the mockers, nor did I rejoice. I sat alone because of your hand, for you have filled me with with indignation. Right? The sweet and the bitter set side by side, sweet to the man of God, to the woman of God who has his word, who delights in his word, bitter in the preaching of that word to an idolatrous people. Jeremiah filled with indignation. So Jeremiah, Ezekiel, now John, commissioned with words that are immeasurably sweet to those who have placed their trust in the Lord. Words filled filled with the mercy and grace of God, but words nevertheless that he is commissioned to speak to those who will blaspheme. Words that he is commissioned to speak to those who will refuse to hear. Words that by them will be hated, despised, rejected. Words filled on both sides of the scroll with mourning, lamentation, and woe. Consider the goodness and severity of God, right? And those who fall severity toward you, goodness. Consider the bitter and the sweet. Evangelism isn't always going to be sweet, is it? His word is sweet. How precious is the gospel to you? How precious? The means through which God saved your soul, the person and work of Jesus Christ, the gospel is precious to God's people. But that very word is often rejected even blasphemed by those who refuse to hear. And it can be, if we're not careful, it can be disheartening. It can settle as bitter in our stomachs. But you have been given, I have been given a stewardship of this word. Brothers and sisters, that is our responsibility. It is our stewardship. We're to take the bitter with the sweet. We can't just imagine that there's always going to be sweet and only sweet. The Lord Jesus Christ was crucified. The Lord Jesus Christ suffered. And because the world hated him, it's going to hate you and I too. Student is not above his master. We have been given a ministry, a responsibility, a stewardship that is sweet to the people of God, but it settles his bitterness in our stomach. You can hear an understanding of that truth in Paul's words from 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 10 I endure all things for the sake of the elect God's word sweet the Lord Jesus Christ precious salvation of God's people sweet and precious nevertheless Paul says I have to endure why does Paul use that word 
He uses that word because Paul is going to face adversity. He's going to face difficulty. He's going to face their frowns. He's going to face their refusing, rejecting countenance upon him. He, Paul says he suffers trouble like an evildoer to the point of chains. Paul, who's God's word sweet to the apostle Paul. Paul says, I suffer trouble like I'm an evildoer. And I have the greatest news to preach imaginable. And yet I suffer as an evildoer to the point of chains, Paul sitting in a Roman prison. But God is not chained, Paul said. God's word is not chained. God's word runs swiftly. And God's word runs swiftly through his people who have taken that commission to themselves as their responsibility. God's people who have taken that responsibility to themselves as their stewardship, as their great commission. And those who are faithful to the Lord to accept the bitter with the sweet. They're faithful to accept the bitter with the sweet and to preach that word to a lost and idolatrous world knowing there are going to be many who reject it, but God's elect won't. There will come a time when God will call them to himself, when he will justify them and he'll glorify, and we'll see them in heaven, right? We'll see them in heaven. There's often a bitterness in the preaching of God's word to a people who will, who will reject it. Paul says, I endure all things for the sake of the elect. I've often thought about that with respect to witnessing. Sometimes... Um, might not have the right attitude or the right perspective when I'm preaching the gospel or uh, when given opportunities to preach the gospel. I really need, I want to encourage us to think about it in this way. That is possibly one of God's elect ones. Someone that God has foreloved from before the foundation of the world. Someone whom God has determined to set his love upon. Someone for whom Christ has died. So I want to preach the gospel to that person. I don't know if they're one of the elect. I don't know if they're lost. I don't know how they're going to respond to this particular conversation. Although they, re- they respond poorly to this particular conversation, they may, re- may respond uh, with repentance and faith to one, three years, four years, five years down the road, 10 years down the road. We don't know. That's not our responsibility. Those things which are hidden, they belong to God. Those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children. What has been revealed to me is the word of God. What has been revealed to me by the grace of God is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I've been given, you've been given a stewardship to preach that word, to take the bitter with the sweet. Because when we take the bitter with the sweet, we're walking in the steps of our Lord. We're sharing in his afflictions. We're sharing in his suffering. And we'll share in his glory. In Revelation chapter 10, John receives this as a stewardship. Verse 11, he said to me, you must prophesy again about many people, nations, tongues, and kings. It's relevant to everyone, everywhere. You're not done, John. More revelation is given, and it is a weighty revelation. It's a weighty responsibility. You've got to continue your work. So John's experience is going to mirror that of Ezekiel. Brothers and sisters, our experience is going to mirror that of Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Paul, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, and now John. Our experience is going to mirror theirs. The world will hate you because you testify of it that its deeds are evil. But his word is more to be desired than gold. Amen? Yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. So what are we to do? How are we to go about this? We're to embrace that stewardship. 
John didn't, you know, walk up to the angel and, uh, no, no, it's okay. <laughs> John didn't do that. Ezekiel didn't do that. Jeremiah didn't do that. Why? That word was sweet. That word was sweet. John accepted his stewardship. Brothers and sisters, embrace your responsibility. Embrace your stewardship in faith. Take responsibility. And with Paul, do all for the sake of the elect that Jesus Christ may receive the full reward of his suffering. This is meant to be an encouragement to us. This, even this parenthesis dealing with John's recommissioning meant to be an encouragement to us. I pray that it is to you, it is to me. We must overcome. And we are going to overcome through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's remain faithful, amen? Amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for the great commission. Thank you for employing us, as it were, as laborers, as slaves in your vineyard. We rejoice to be slaves in your vineyard. Your word is sweet. Your redemption is precious. The Lord Jesus Christ, a treasure above all treasures. Or we thank you, we praise you, we worship you, we exult in you, we revel, we glory in all that you have done for us through the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ to redeem us to yourself, to give us an inheritance in eternity. We praise you and thank you for these things. And please, Lord, find us faithful in the stewardship that we've been given of that word, which is sweet, which often falls in our stomachs is bitter when we consider that we'll preach that word often to a unrepentant and blaspheming, uh, rebellious people. Help us to take the bitter with the sweet, though, for the sake of the elect, for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he might receive the full reward of his suffering. Help us to embrace in faith that ministry, that ministry of reconciliation that's been given to us. Help us to embrace it in faith and walk in the example of our Lord Jesus Christ who went before us, who for the joy set before him endured the shame the shame of the cross. Help us to follow in his steps. Help us to be faithful in our witness as a light in a dark place for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. Hello, and thanks for listening. My name is Mark Brashear, and I have the blessed privilege of serving with the Saints at Cornerstone Church near Orlando, Florida. We're so grateful that you've connected with us through the sermon that you've just heard. For more information, visit us at cornerstoneorlando.org. Or better yet, come and see us on the Lord's Day at 3370 Snow Hill Road in Oviedo, Florida. We're just east of Orlando and about 15 minutes from the campus at UCF. It would be a joy to have you worship with us.